and I'm her her temporary co-host, Chuckles. Um, I was gonna introduce you. Oh. Okay. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstar Podcast. So today's episode is going to be an episode of Riverside Chats. On Riverside Chats, myself and my husband, Chuckles. Hello, everyone. So the two of us will talk about some issues that we think might be interesting to discuss. And I like bringing him on because he brings a different point of view to the podcast. So I figured that this will be a good opportunity to hear a different side of the issues that we're going to talk about. All right. So today we're going to talk about a couple of different issues. One that I kind of wanted to get into is the idea of free speech versus terrorism. And what I mean by that, and this kind of also gets into the issue of white supremacy. This is a topic that I talk about quite a bit on the podcast. One of the things that comes up a lot is the idea that, unlike in Europe, in the United States, we tend to protect hate speech because of our First Amendment right to free speech. So because we have that First Amendment right to free speech, that covers speech that is that most people find undesirable or most people find even like repulsive. Yeah, so white supremacy would usually fall under that category. But then what I kind of want to explore is where that bleeds into the issue of terrorism. Right-wing terrorism, including white supremacist terrorism, has been um, the most dominant form of terrorism in the United States for the last several years. So that is something that is, you know, that's a big deal. So the thing is, when we talk about white supremacy, it's not just about speech. We're also talking about violence as well. And in light of what happened in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, that's probably the big story. But then there have been other cases of uh, white supremacist terrorism over the last few years. Last year, for example, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, 2018 had a decent spike in terrorism that was connected to right-wing groups. And so I kind of wanted to talk about this within the framework of free speech versus terrorism and kind of where does the line, like where does kind of, where do we kind of draw the line with that, especially as we're talking about like young, especially young white boys and young white men being radicalized to get into white supremacy and white supremacist violence. Obviously, I, I think that line is uh, pretty pretty thick and pretty easy to define, as in, like, because there's a big difference between going online and saying, I hate X-rays, versus just watch the news tomorrow, I'm going to kill a group of X-rays. I mean, obviously, I think one should be covered by free speech, and then the other obviously shouldn't, because that's an intent for violence, and obviously that's a big deal. Now, how do you feel about that in light of, because I guess the way I look at it is, so 
on the surface, I think that, of course, we can talk about like there's a difference between speech and action. But then we look at, say, for example, ISIS. ISIS or Al-Qaeda, these are Islamic terror groups. And a lot of what the government looks to suppress is not just the actual like violence that comes from Islamic extremism. They also look at what types of media, young men, whether it's young Muslim men of any race that might consume that, that will decide, oh, well, I'm going to now not just be like, oh, I hate the West or, oh, I hate any form of Islam that's not super extremist and super conservative to actual violence, actual terror attacks. So like there is this crackdown of that type of media as well. So I mean, if you go and you try to look up ISIS videos, then that's probably going to put you on a list. I would imagine so. But of course, with these ISIS videos, you know, I mean, I think you could consider those to be a call to violence also. Whether it be like right out there in the open for violence or kind of a more subtle approach. I mean, a call to violence is a call to violence. Right. But the issue is, is that I feel like we don't treat white supremacist calls to violence in the same way that we treat calls to violence from Islamic terror groups. Yeah, I, I can see what you mean, but I, I don't know. I can't think of any specific examples off of the top of my head of the white supremacy calls to violence that have really been ignored. But, well, actually, yes, I can. Wow. I guess that they're more ignored, you know, because I, I guess that a lot of people, they kind of chalk them up to like mental health issues over here as opposed to the Islamic videos where they're just like, oh, that's a terrorist. We've got to get them. And that's the thing. I do think that that distinction is a problem. And the reason why I say that is because talking about ideologies, these are both like Islamic extremism and White supremacy are both ideologies that can lead to violence. Doesn't have to necessarily, but it can and it does. And I think, and, and I think that that's an issue that should be explored and should be dealt with. So it kind of makes me think of, for example, recently, Congressional Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, or AOC as she's known, she was in the news because Congress had a hearing recently. It was called Confronting White Supremacy. And they had officials come to Congress to testify in regards to how the FBI deals with white supremacy as opposed to Islamic terror. One of the things that made the news was AOC was questioning the terrorism expert from the FBI, Michael McGarity. And there was a whole line of questions where she was trying to get to the bottom of why white supremacist terrorism isn't treated as terrorism by the FBI. It's treated as hate crime, but not terrorism, because terrorism has a whole nother level of, I guess, importance and punishment and all that, right? Uh. So why white supremacist violence isn't considered terrorism by the FBI as opposed to Islamic terrorism. And one of the interesting things that came from that line of questioning is that McGarity actually mentioned this 
doesn't it seem that because the perpetrator is that's not, Muslim, that's not that do, the that, designation would no, say it's a foreign organization? No, that's not correct. If you, that is not correct. Okay. Can you explain yeah. why? So, homegrown bond extremists, who we are most of the people we arrest in the United States, homegrown bond extremists, uh, self-radicalized, born in the U.S., doesn't matter what religion. But the are. Orlando Pulse Club shooter meets those qualifications, and he is. You're implying he was worked as an international terrorist. He was following under the definition. But he was homegrown and self-radicalized. Extremist cases. How we work homegrown bond extremist cases under the global jihad. We worked under international terrorism. That is correct. Uh, is white supremacy not a global issue? It is a global issue. So why are they not charged with foreign? Because the United Terrorism. States Congress doesn't have a statute for us. I thought that that was actually kind of interesting. I actually wasn't even aware that, and I think probably a lot of people aren't, is that apparently there is not a domestic terrorism statute that would allow for the FBI to go after domestic terrorists. Well, particularly domestic terrorists whose ideologies are tied to domestic terror organizations, as opposed to terrorists whose ideologies can be tied to foreign terrorist organizations, you know, or international terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And I wonder, and, you know, with that coming out and that there is that distinction within the law, with that being exposed, I'm kind of like, okay, that is, you know, that's problematic because both types of terrorism still kill people. And especially within the United States, considering that right-wing terrorism is a bigger threat, especially in recent years, as opposed to um, left-wing terrorism or even Islamic terrorism, that's that's concerning. I, I would agree, but I, I wonder what it is exactly that uh, that's keeping them from classifying the white supremacy terrorism as an actual act of terrorism. That's very strange. Yeah, I think it's just it's the way that they've written those laws. I guess my question is at this point, since we know that there is that distinction, why isn't that being addressed? Should that be addressed? Well, I think it should absolutely be addressed. Of, of course, but they, they also have to make sure they have the, the proper distinction of of it being an act of, of a call for violence as opposed to just a free speech issue. I guess what I think should happen is that if we're going to talk about like terrorism statutes, I think that we need to make sure that we are defining terrorism in terms of, you know, language that I guess like language that isn't necessarily like biased against ideologies that we just don't like. Because I almost wonder if maybe to some degree too. So on one hand, with white supremacy, there is protection for it as far as the ideology. But then I'm wondering, as far as Islamic extremism, how are we defining that? Okay, so we do have like certain established groups, right? Right. So we have Al Qaeda, we have ISIS, we have a number of other groups. But then if they're defining it by like, okay, extremist Islamic ideology or extremist religious ideology or extremist political ideology as well, right? And right. there's some overlap there too. 
even like with the Islamic terrorism, there's a lot of overlap because of the political background with with the West um, in terms of like Cold War and all that. So, I mean, there's a lot of this stuff is really intertwined, honestly. But I guess what I want to see is to have terrorism statutes just kind of in line with like a neutral definition of what ideology, what what we're talking about when it comes to terrorism. When we talk about terrorism being violence, particularly against civilians, based on ideology or ideological cause of violence. I, I can definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. First of all, I wonder why the laws regarding terrorism weren't written that way to encompass all types of terrorism. And then also, now that we know that there is a distinction, where's the energy for fixing it? Your your guess is really as good as mine. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder how much of this is to some degree political in terms of white supremacists having some currency or some sway with our government or current government officials. And the reason why I say that is, so for example, one of the controversies regarding Twitter is that Twitter has refused to outright like ban white supremacists from using their platform. And the reason why they don't want to use, they have the technology to actually ban these these accounts right right because they've done that with isis accounts but they refuse to do that for white supremacist white nationalist accounts and the big reason why they won't is that they're concerned that if they use ai like artificial intelligence to suspend or to ban white nationalist accounts they will risk catching Republican politicians. And so I wonder maybe some of the reason, kind of going back to what we're talking about um, as far as legally, like why there's not the energy to go after white supremacist terrorists or use or use similar laws or create similar laws to classify white supremacist violence as terrorism. I wonder if it's because there is some sway that that white nationalists or white supremacists have with politicians. And yet Twitter has no problem at all with with banning uh, like uh, non-politician conservative accounts. Sargon of Akkad, he's a, a very popular YouTuber, but he was suspended from Twitter last year. And then, of course, you know, there's the whole thing of banning Alex Jones, which, I mean, I can understand, I can kind of under- understand that, but at the same time, I mean, he's just, why anyone continues to take him seriously is beyond me. There are plenty of people that take him seriously, though. I mean, people, people believe in a lot of ridiculous things. But then also at the same time, I don't know, though, if Twitter is specifically going after conservative politicians because or conservative accounts, I should say, because they also have gone after some left wing accounts as well. For example, like the Krasenstein brothers, they banned them from Twitter. They temporarily banned Bishop Talbert Swan. So I would say that more or less like their equal opportunity in terms of that. 
But at the same time, like as far as just outright going after specifically white supremacist accounts, for example, the Proud Boys, stuff like that, like where it's like specifically like white supremacists. And I mean, I've seen a number of them on Twitter because I'm on there a lot. But they, they are not going after those like they would go after, say, ISIS. Like, I haven't seen an ISIS account at all. <laughs> so, I mean, they have the capability. They just don't want to. I, again, you know, look to uh, Candace Owens and, and how she tweeted something very similar to what a Democratic politician tweeted out. It was a very hateful thing. And the the politician was left alone, and yet she was banned, or at least uh, suspended anyway. And I have I I don't understand what the point of that is. I think that they're just low to get rid of politicians on Twitter because I mean, there's been things that like but but, but they they didn't get well. Nonetheless, I mean, what the politician said was hateful towards white people. Candace Owens tweeted something that was similar, but you know, turned towards a different group, and she was the one that was banned. I think that's ridiculous. It makes no sense at all. Without knowing all the details, right? The thing that I have noticed is that if someone, if a politician tweets something, then they don't get banned. So, like, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's any, like, Democratic politician, any Republican politician that might say something that can be seen as being hateful or being, like, attacking someone or whatever, they'll stay up. I found exactly what I was talking about, and I was way off base. It was Sarah Jong. Okay. From a New York Times editorial board. She's had tweets from several years ago, like, hashtag cancel white people and oh man it's kind of sick how much joy i get out of being cruel to old white men oh and also uh are white people genetically predisposed to burn faster in the sun thus logically being only fit to live underground like groveling goblins which what which is whatever that's a different but then you know candace owens went and swapped words around and she also said that uh uh she uh candace owens tweeted out Jewish people are bullshit, like dogs pissing on fire hydrants. Can- hashtag cancel Jewish people. Are Jewish people genetically disp- disposed to burn faster than the sun? Of course, you know, that's a parody of Sarah Jong's tweet, only swapping out white for Jewish. So, and again, they didn't touch Sarah Jong's account and said they banned Candace Owens. That's just all sorts of, of wrong. Now, to be fair, if you're talking about Jewish people burning. Like, there's a lot of, I think that there's certain connotations there that, let's be for real, like, are not there for white people. I mean, of course, but, but also, again, I mean, this is, this is Candace Owens parodying this tweet. And also, uh, Candace Owens made the, the same tweet only instead of, uh, or the same parody tweet, but instead of using white, she used black. And, and I think it was after that one that she got, that, that she was suspended. So again, that's also stupid. That's that's just wrong. Twitter isn't very good with nuance as far as really getting a lot of context. So, I mean, there is that also. 
again, I don't know enough about, like, I don't know if they've said anything about it or, like, if there's, you know, I don't know enough to speak too, too much to that specific situation. Uh, uh, do you mean if Twitter said anything? Yeah. No, they didn't say anything because, of course, they didn't. The, 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 New, the New York Times made a statement, but that was it. And it was, and it was the, the same sort of stuff. The New York Times said this. Uh, we hired Sarah Jong because of the exceptional work she has done covering the internet and technology at a range of respected publications. Her journalism and the fact that she is a young Asian woman have made her a subject of frequent online harassment. For a period of time, she responded to that harassment by imitating the rhetoric of her, of her harassers. She sees now that this approach only served to feed the vitriol that we too often see on social media. She regrets it and the Times does not condone it. We had candid conversations with Sarah as part of our thorough vetting process, which included a review of her social media history. She understands that this type of rhetoric is not acceptable at the Times, and we are confident that she will be an important voice for the editorial board moving forward. Which, of course, is a, a, a complete cop-out. And I highly, I highly doubt they reviewed anything at all of, of her social media history. I would hope that they would have, considering that that's a pretty high-profile job, though. Considering the trash that the New York Times has been for a long time, I highly doubt they did any of that. And instead, they looked at the fact that, that, that she was a female, a female minority, and were like, oh, we're going to hire this girl. I don't know about that, because, I mean, realistically, in a lot of those jobs, the people who are minorities and especially women who are minorities are still underrepresented it's so, it's it's the new york times they they love minorities there i disagree but not not to say that minorities are bad obviously they're not but the new york times are are all about those hires like that i don't think within the new york times or within most of the mainstream media i don't think that white men are hurting for jobs well, I mean, of course not, but it still doesn't change the fact that, that Sarah John should have, if they really vetted her, and part of that being her social media presence, or her social media history, then they wouldn't have hired her in the first place just because of the stupidity of these tweets. I disagree with that because it sounds like a plausible explanation, number one. And number two, it sounds like almost like she's parent, like, so the whole thing sounds almost meta. In a sense, basically, she was parroting the people that were coming after her. And then you have Candace Owens parroting Sarah John. I don't believe for a second that she was parroting anything. The New York Times is a trash publication. You're giving Candace Owens the benefit of the doubt that you're not willing to give Sarah John because of ideology. But see, Candace Owens also made it clear that, that, that she was parroting Sarah John's tweets to show the hypocrisy of Twitter. Both the tweets that Candace Owens sent out, uh, she made it clear, the above statements are from New York Times editor Sarah Jong. I simply swapped out the word white for black, thus making it 100% clear it was a parody. That might be the case, but again, like I've said, like there are also examples of people who are on the left that have also been banned or suspended including those that have spoken out, like, for example, Bishop Talbert Swan, who's spoken out against white supremacy and has been very, like, straightforward as far as going after white supremacists that, you know, will, like, attack him on Twitter. 
yes, I think Twitter is inconsistent, but I don't think that conservatives in particular are being targeted because there's plenty of evidence in terms of Twitter being inconsistent that it's gone both ways. Twitter is more apt to go after those that they don't see as the big fish. Candace Owens, that might be a more high-profile example. The Krasensteins are another, maybe a more high-profile example. But in terms of the people that they go after every day, though, they talk about shadow banning and all that. Those are mostly relatively small fries compared to some of the re- like the actual really big accounts. Okay, so switching gears, another issue that I thought would be interesting to talk about is the Second Amendment, and in particular, Donald Trump and his support for the Second Amendment, any like compromise or softening of support for the Second Amendment, and how that would affect his following. So, for example, after the Las Vegas shooting, Trump came out in favor of banning bump stocks. You're more of an expert on guns than I am. And so if you want to talk a little bit more about what are bump stocks. Bump stocks, basically, they're a a device that that causes the gun to to slam forward and back and thus, you know, causing the gun to to operate almost like an automatic weapon. But but just like an actual automatic weapon, it's extremely inconsistent. Uh, It can it can damage your your firearm very quickly, very badly. Your accuracy is terrible. I guess I, I can kind of understand the point of wanting to ban them, but at the same time, they're expensive. They don't help anything. In fact, they kind of hinder. That's why the Las Vegas shooter had, uh, I think, what, thousands of rounds and only hit what, less than 100 people? He killed 58 people and wounded 422. I mean, obviously that's a lot, but considering that he was firing into a crowd of thousands, that's obvious that that his accuracy was the pits. Mm -hmm. I mean, still, obviously, uh, a lot of people were killed and a lot of people were injured, but obviously it could have been a lot worse. Right. But so then Donald Trump, you know, went and said that he would consider the ban for bump stocks, and, and the NRA was, was all for it just because of the, of, of the possibility of, or the concession for constitutional carry. Of course, you know, now, as, as we see nowadays, bump stocks are banned, and we don't have constitutional carry. So I recall right after Donald Trump said that, a lot of supporters, they were irritated by that, and it's just gotten worse from there. With the recent news of talking about the possibility of banning suppressors, which are already highly regulated, they're expensive, takes a bit to get them, and realistically, in the committing of a crime, they're not going to you're not going to use a suppressor mainly because okay. they're not going to care. Yeah, if you can explain also what a suppressor is, a suppressor will. Uh, Reduce the volume of a gunshot to just below the decibel level that will cause permanent hearing loss. So that's a big thing that movies get wrong because they, they always portray a gun being shot with a suppressor as sounding like a tiny ping, 
when in reality it's still very loud, it's just not so loud that you'll damage your hearing permanently. In other words, like in common parlance, you'd hear about a suppressor being called a silencer. Right, which is the incorrect term. It doesn't silence anything. It suppresses the gunshot. Uh, the gases uh, out of the end of the barrel cause it to kind of cause the gun to really buck it. Instead of the gases firing straight out from the gun, it's channeled to the side, so it keeps the recoil down a lot also. Mm-hmm. But, of course, I mean, the main use for a suppressor is the, the volume, is the volume aspect. Okay. One of the things you mentioned is you think that if Donald Trump were to, and I mean, he's talked about going after suppressors, that you think that some of his supporters would peel off? Oh, yeah. I saw the an article about him saying about how he was thinking about going after suppressors, and there were commenters, there were multiple comments by supporters saying that he's lost a supporter or that he will lose a supporter if this goes through. So I, I think that there's that on top of all the other bad things that Donald Trump has done. This just kind of exacerbates that and shows that the, the group that, that he showed strong support for in the 2016 election, he, he's shown he's not so pro-Second Amendment after all, because realistically, uh, you give the anti-gun politicians, you give them an inch and they will take a mile. Well, so far, Donald Trump is potentially giving them about five or six inches. So in full disclosure, for those of you that might be new to the podcast, even though I am left of center on the vast majority of issues, I am very much pro Second Amendment. I feel that, and I've talked about this in, in more in depth than other episodes, but as far as a lot of like the mass shootings and a lot of the gun violence in the U.S., I think that there are a lot of root causes that that should be addressed that to where I don't think it's necessarily a matter of, oh, well, guns are available as much as it is that we have a number of deep-seated issues, poverty, white supremacy, a history of, of not dealing with mental health care, that those issues, I think that those issues need to be addressed and I think that's what's driving a lot of the gun violence. And, you know, I've also talked about, like, why I'm for the Second Amendment as well. I've been for it even prior to Trump being president. But it's just um, a matter of not trusting that, you know, I don't think that we should always trust the government with all its corruption and everything to to be, like, the sole arbiter of use of force. So... That's kind of, in a nutshell, where I stand on that. And I wanted to make sure I kind of put that out of the way, especially for those that are relatively new to the podcast and haven't listened to those episodes. But kind of going back into into that as far as with Trump, I guess I'm kind of skeptical as to Trump losing support if he were to back certain gun control measures or certain measures that would limit guns or limit accessories uh, if there's anything that the donald trump supporters are it's supporters of the second amendment and for a lot of those people the second amendment is extremely important and so any anyone trying to mess with it with the second amendment or with gun rights or even with these accessories is almost automatically an enemy of supporters so 
I think that Donald Trump is potentially, you know, going to find himself stepping into a big pothole and, and tripping over himself uh, if he keeps messing with the Second Amendment because Second Amendment supporters are, they're very bullheaded. As soon as you cross them, then they're not going to support you any longer, or at least not as strongly. And they, they will be more willing to to look to another candidate. I disagree. And the reason why I disagree with that as much as it sounds good, as far as I maybe mean, see on social media people like complaining about Trump backing gun control measures, but at the same time, statistically, his support is still about where it has been. I'm not saying nobody is going to like not support him. There are going to be people that aren't going to support him if he goes ahead with, especially if he, depending on how far he goes. Bump stocks might be one thing, suppressors might be another, if he goes any further. I mean, you just never know, right? If he goes any further, then the amount of support that he'll lose will be tremendous. I guess, like, my whole thing is that this has been, I mean, because the bump stock thing was a couple of years ago, but it's like you don't really see his support really going down. Like, it's been pretty solid. And just overall, as far as the stats for that. Well, I, I think a lot of that is because realistically, I mean, bump stocks aren't necessarily something that gun owners are really clamoring for, as opposed to suppressors, where a lot of gun owners would like to have a suppressor just because, just for the, the hearing benefits. Mm-hmm. That and also, you know, because they would like for suppressors to be taken off of the, of the list to, uh, of items which you need to have nfa tax stamp for like you know suppressors stu- uh, stuff like that where you pay a 200 hundred dollar tax stamp that there's multiple background checks all that kind of stuff and people would just like to make that process a little easier for the peace of mind of having their hearing being a little more protected you and i had had a conversation about this off air and i think you mentioned that just for the tax stamp that adds an extra Two hundred bucks. Uh, uh, two two hundred dollars on top of a six hundred to a thousand dollar suppressor. Okay, yeah. So I mean, they're pretty pricey about the cost of an actual gun to begin with, and then on top of that, the tax stamp is a significant additional cost. In terms of gun rights, how far do you think Trump would need to go to where it would make a significant difference? in terms of his support. Whether it be him, him calling for real gun control or, you know, if he were to go and seek Australia-style gun control, I mean, that would almost guarantee that, that, that he wouldn't get reelected. Really, I think any sort of gun control measure, where either that or a national gun registry, I think would kill a lot of his support. Basically, anything that's really like on that extreme level, I think that he would lose a lot of support. Mm-hmm. I- I'm just honestly not seeing it. I mean, I know for you, the Second Amendment is a huge deal. And, and I don't doubt that for a lot of more right leaning and Republican voters, that that wouldn't be a huge deal for them. I'm sure it is, right? But at the same time, I don't know if that was the driver for the vote. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of what Trump focused on in in 2016 election and all that, 
it wasn't so much just on the gun piece. He talked a lot about immigration, about whatever groups he didn't like, all that kind of stuff. And I wonder if for a number of people who voted for him, it may be a matter of, well, a couple things. So a matter of his rhetoric regarding the wall and regarding refugees and all that being a driver for still supporting him. But then also, even if they really, really hate the idea of him going after guns, I wonder if, number one, having the support of the NRA, which, I mean, it seems like the NRA has made a number of compromises of their own to support Trump. So with the support of the NRA, but then also them looking at the, like, oh, what's the Democratic alternative, right? You know, because it's not like we have, like, there's a bunch of, like, Democratic candidates that are pro-Second Amendment out here. Yeah, uh, like- since, since you've mentioned the NRA, I should make it known that, realistically, the NRA is, uh, quite frankly, their support uh, of the Second Amendment is withering at best, I would say, because they also came out in support of banning bump stocks. Mm-hmm. They haven't done much at all, as as far as anything with from talking about. Uh, potentially looking into into banning suppressors. So I I think that they're not necessarily the best source to look at for any sort of opinion or support of Donald Trump. One of the things that they have done is like they have been more explicit in the past several years in terms of their support specifically for Trump. The idea of focusing on being a gun lobby, being secondary, to support for Trump. It's not like Trump is the first presidential candidate that they've supported. They've also gone after Democratic politicians. They've had a lot of press that was like against President Obama when he was in office. So, I mean, there was that, but I have never seen them go so in for a president or for a presidential candidate to the degree that they've gone in for Trump. I guess the reason why I brought up the NRA wasn't so much because I think that they are a good bellwether for gun control or versus Second Amendment rights. It's more because a lot of people who are in favor of the Second Amendment support the NRA. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody who is pro-Second Amendment is in support of the NRA. Like, I've never been a fan of the NRA myself. And, I mean, even those that are more right of center, there are some that have been critical. But in general, I mean, the NRA is so ubiquitous in gun culture in the U.S. that people still are going to look to the NRA in terms of who they will or won't support, though. That is very true, but I, I think that that oh that overall their support has really wavered. The number of supporters of the NRA in favor of of gun groups that actually kind of work for the people as opposed to work for politicians. Mm-hmm. Like as far as you know, working on keeping the Second Amendment alive, maybe trying to to remove some of the restrictions that aren't really necessary. So that wraps it up. Thanks again, Chuckles, for coming on to Potstar Podcast. And thank you for having me. It's always fun to change things up on occasion 
with a guest voice on the podcast. Recently, another awesome podcast on Flying Machine did just that. Falling in Love Montage. In their most recent episode, Helen and Valerie were joined by special guest, or I should say special AF guest, Millie DeCherico from Turner Classic Movies and TCM Underground to talk about Roman Holiday, a classic rom-com movie starring Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. It's a great episode. Super entertaining. I'm a history buff, so I really enjoy this a lot, and I highly recommend it, as well as all episodes of Falling in Love Montage. Listen to Falling in Love Montage on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. And check out their website, fallinginlovemontage.com. And for all the great podcasts of Flying Machine, plus the super thought-provoking Flying Machine blog, check out flyingmachine.network. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you really enjoyed the podcast, give us five stars on your favorite podcatcher and leave a review. It's just so that more people will be able to see Potstirer Podcast in search results. And I'm always tweeting. Feel free to tweet me at PotstirerCast. And for the one-stop shop, go to PotstirerPodcast.com. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.